It's the 21st of August, 2020. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. In this edition, a real downer edition, oh my, it's about delays, discontinuations, and setbacks. All is bad news, and none of it has to do with COVID. Imagine that. We'll start off with some COVID reports from Canada. Actually, a bunch of dermatologists in one of the dermatology journals looked at their 2,000 patients who were on biologics, a sizable group. They're taking IL-17 inhibitors, TNF inhibitors, IL-12, 23 inhibitors, 23 inhibitors by themselves. They wanted to see what happened during the pandemic with regard to use. In their study, they found that only 1.1% of their 2,000 patients stopped their biologic. Surprising. Uh, As you know, a lot of our patients didn't have a lot of guidance about what to do, although the guidance that was out there said, don't stop your medicines uh, until you talk to your doctor or unless you're hospitalized. But nonetheless, very few of their patients stopped. The interesting thing was of the few that did stop, there was a reasonable rate of flares. Uh, For instance, uh, five of the 23 who stopped and had to restart their biologic because of flares. Uh, and that's flares of their skin disease. So I think it's good news that our patients didn't stop their biologic during this era. I think it's an important message that we need to perpetuate uh, in our uh, arthritis patients as well. So we do know that diabetes is a serious co- uh, comorbidity and risk factor for worse outcomes in patients with the coronavirus. Uh, and there's a preprint that has recently appeared I think it's going to get a lot of press. I think it's very important. It's a retrospective review. Uh, Again, here come all the the caveats that limit the studies we have thus far on COVID. This one's a preprint. It's a retrospective review. It's an uh, an EHR, a medical record study. But it's an EHR review of over 25,000 COVID patients tested within the University of Alabama, Birmingham healthcare system. And they showed that the COVID patients who were taking metformin, had a significantly lower mortality risk uh, compared to COVID patients who had diabetes and weren't taking metformin. It was, again, an odds ratio of 0.33. That's a 67% reduction in mortality. If true, that's amazing data. What else looks good in COVID? Well, there's a, another preprint analysis of RCTs and, um, uh, and on non-RCTs, over 11 studies, looking at JAK inhibitor use in patients with COVID, showing it too reduced mortality and also very significant, like a 98% reduction and also reduced ICU admission significantly, over, over 90%. Another analysis in that same uh, publication looked at type 1 interferon therapy. Not a lot of experience there, but it also had significant reductions in mortality. Again, are these preprints? Is this selective reporting? Is this reality? But the good news is there's some good news. Similarly, another study comes out of a New Jersey hospital system study of 764 patients who went on to uh, receive tocilizumab in about 27% of those patients. Turns out that, again, tocilizumab when used, had a lower death rate, 49% versus 61% for those who didn't take tocilizumab. That's a a risk reduction of about one-third. And they saw similar results with with regard to tocilizumab uh, preventing the use uh, of mechanical ventilation or progression to mechanical ventilation. So tocilizumab, the story in COVID seems to be mostly positive, a few negatives, but mostly positive at this point. Again, as I said last week, we're waiting for the 
full reports, the well-designed studies, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trials, they're going to start streaming in in September and October. BMJ Open reports on the uh, rate of dis- rate of referral amongst RA patients. I looked this one up. In fact, this is a, a year-old report coming from the uh, United Kingdom and the National Health Service, and they showed that there was a, a significant median delay from first symptom of rheumatoid arthritis to seeing a rheumatologist. Their median number was 27 weeks. This sort of supported supports my idea that and my belief that there still is a significant delay in patients being referred. You know, we've been preaching, you know, early referral, early referral, early referral. But how many of you rheumatologists have actually written a note to any or all of your colleagues saying, send me your rheumatoids. I have a facilitated spot for them. No, you kind of take what comes your way. Um, we don't advertise for the patients we want to see. If you ran an RA-only clinic, as opposed to you'll see anything clinic, don't you think you would be doing that? Um, meaning telling people, send me your RA patients and let's get it done. Of that 27-week delay, it turns out that at least five weeks of that was due to patient delay. We know that patients are a significant factor in not wanting to seek help, even though they have a need for help. GP delays is almost seven weeks of, of that number. Hospital delays almost five weeks. So you start adding it up, you get to at least a six-month delay in the average patient with rheumatoid arthritis before they can see a rheumatologist. We really still need to work on that. Um, arthritis research and therapy reports on a very interesting study on um, lupus and discontinuation or uh, stopping hydroxychloroquine. This comes from three New York City lupus clinics where they have some big lupus clinics in New York City. And they specifically looked at patients who were uh, older with lupus who stopped their hydroxychloroquine. The average age in this clinic, uh, in in this cohort of 58 patients, was 60 years of age. They had lupus for more than 20 years. They had been on Plaquenil for an average of 13 plus years. Uh, And the reasons for discontinuing hydroxychloroquine was almost half of them, or 42%, with retinal toxicity concerns, patient preference in about a third, adverse effects in 15%. Turns out that there was no difference in flare rates in lupus patients who stopped their hydroxychloroquine and a matched population who continued their hydroxychloroquine. So I, I know you would think there would be more, more flares for a drug that's often uh, very beneficial, but maybe there's a point in which stopping hydroxychloroquine can be stopped without risk. And these people, it was for retinal toxicity or adverse events. But again, most of the flares that were seen, and we're talking about either 19 or 16% flare rates, a fairly low number, were mainly flares as far as musculoskeletal complaints and skin. So really quite manageable uh, and maybe reassuring for older patients who have to stop their hydroxychloroquine. So an interesting article this week came out in one of the, germ- in the, the GI journals about um, the risk of developing inflammatory bowel disease. The study comes from the Karolinska Institute, which looked at 24,000 new incident cases of either Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, compared them one to five match controls. So that's a 24,000 versus almost 120,000. And they looked at the use of antibiotics in that system. Turns out antibiotic use was associated with near, a near doubling of the risk of developing inflammatory bowel disease the adjusted odds ratio being 1.88. 
So this has been hinted at in several of our diseases as well. Does antibiotics increase the odds? Can antibiotics, especially repeated use of antibiotics, and in their study they showed that people who received three or more um, antibiotic courses were more likely than that number I just quoted to develop IBD. Not a lot more likely, but certainly more likely. Um, but does that alter one's microbiome? And does that change one's biology and flip it to the biology you don't want uh, that might lead to developing inflammatory disease like inflammatory bowel disease? It's provocative uh, information. The J. Room has an interesting study about the benefits of biologics in preventing cardiovascular events. This comes from a fairly large cohort, um, almost 19,000 RA patients in a forward study, who, 1,800 of whom developed, had a cardiovascular event um, during this 10-year follow-up, I believe it was. Uh, they found that the risk reduction for cardiovascular event was seen with methotrexate. We've known that from Fred Wolf uh, and Choi, published almost 20 years ago, methotrexate dropped the risk of cardiovascular events by, in their study here, um, 18%, hazard ratio 0.82. Above and beyond that, you can do better for people who are taking TNF inhibitors um, and or uh, abatacept. Uh, TNF inhibitor use dropped uh, the, the, the rate by, again, 18%, and abatacept by 50% compared to patients who are just taking uh, DMARDs alone. So this goes to data we talked about before that chronic use of a biologic, often with methotrexate, um, is what gives you the cardiovascular benefit. It's not short-term use. It's got to be the long-term use, sometimes as long as three years or more, or at least two years or more. 27 months is what I remember from some old studies we covered at ULAR uh, a few years ago that said that you then get the benefit of cardiovascular risk reduction. Uh, a single-center prospective study of 50 severe lupus patients, um, 31 years for those who are treated with um, mycophenolate, 28 years old for those treated with IV cytoxins. Specifically in this study, this prospective study, they looked at ovarian dysfunction to see what would happen and whether or not the use of either of those drugs would lead to premature ovarian failure. In their follow-up, these patients, they, it did not. Neither drug led to premature ovari ovarian failure. Now, the sample size is relatively small, but nonetheless, uh, I think it's encouraging data. Ovarian dysfunction was uh, certainly present for the first several months. One is on IV cytoxin, but it was subclinical, didn't amount to much. And the measure of ovarian function, hormone levels and whatnot, sort of reverted to normal. Uh, I think it was after six months or a year in patients treated with IV cytoxin. This is somewhat encouraging data, I think, even um, in a situation where we worry about what's going to happen to ovarian function in patients taking these very strong therapies for severe lupus, lupus nephritis, etc. I think the big surprise of the week came from the FDA when they handed out a no-go decision to filgotinib. Filgotinib, as you know, is um, was poised to be the fourth JAK inhibitor to hit the market. Its data looked very, very good from Darwin studies and Finch studies that you may have heard about that we talked about here. The great thing about filgotinib was it was a once-a-day drug, like some of the other ones we have. Um, it was a selective JAK1 inhibitor. Maybe that was a good thing. Their safety profile, their, their clinical data looked like everybody else's. Looked really strong, looked really good. But their safety data may have been a smidge better than even the other JAK inhibitors. Very low numbers of infections, almost like no, almost low, 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 no numbers for cancer, but less events with regard to zoster 
and with regard to maybe even VTEs, venous thromboembolic events. Well, poised for a decision that was to be handed out this week, the FDA instead handed out a complete response letter. What does that mean? It means that they're asking for more information before they can make a decision about what to do with filgotinib. Specifically, they want the results of two studies that were commissioned um, to study sperm function, sperm numbers. Uh, in animal models, preclinical testing, it looked like the higher doses, the doses that might conform to um, their asking dose of 200 milligrams a day, might be associated with some testicular toxicity, again, in rats and other animals, um, but it didn't have any clinical um, um, uh, 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 um, consequences in those same animal studies. So it was really unclear. Nonetheless, the FDA asked for specifically some sperm studies, and that led to two different studies. One was called the Manta study, which is fully enrolled, 250 patients with either um, IBD, either UC or Crohn's disease, uh, and they're studying sperm function in patients who are receiving um, uh, this filgotinib. There's another study called Manta Ray, where the same sperm studies are being done in our rheumatology patients, RA, PSA, I think undifferentiated, or I'm sorry, non-radiographic axial spa. That study is halted. About 100 patients have been enrolled, uh, and, and uh, the study's on hold, not because of this, but because of the COVID. Uh, several of their studies that were in process are on hold, and I'm sure they're going to resume. The problem is these studies, the Manta study is not completed. Although it's completed enrollment, its first data analysis won't be until sometime in early 2021. And it's going to be even further for the Manta Ray results. So the FDA is asking for more um, data from these sperm studies. They also expressed uh, concern about the risk-benefit um, behind the 200 milligram dose. The interesting thing with filgotinib is they're asking for FDA approval of 100 or, and 200 milligrams once a day in uh, RA patients not responding to or having toxicity to DMARD therapy. Now, just a week or two ago, the EMA um, uh, CHMP committee, which recommends whether a drug should be approved or not by the EMA, recommended filgotinib 100 and 200 milligrams be approved. And then a week later, the FDA turns around and says, whoa, 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 let's look at the sperm data. They also want to look at the 200 milligram data. Again, what's interesting about that is all the, t all the JAK inhibitors that have gone before the FDA have asked for two drugs. That happened with tofacitinib. They wanted 5-BID and 10-BID. They only got 5-BID. That happened with baricitinib. They wanted 2 and 4 milligrams. They only got 2, two milligrams. UPA didn't even ask. They did all the studies with 15 and uh, 30 milligrams once a day, and only upatacitinib, 15 milligrams once a day, was approved, and they all got the same sort of warnings and whatnot. So, I think it was unlikely that the FDA would be poised to approve a 200 milligram dose unless it's safer and maybe even more effective than the lower 100 milligram dose. And I'm not sure they can meet that benchmark. Anyway, there's no decision at this point, not by the FDA, uh, and it's going to be until 2021, could even be 2022, before that actually goes further. So what about... Um, other JAK inhibitors, upadacitinib, uh, you know, has been around now for a while. We're looking at this. Their trials are still being rolled out. The, specifically, the select early trial was reported this week. It's a head-to-head -head trial in patients with about a half a year of rheumatoid arthritis who either are treated with methotrexate 
or with upadacitin of 15 or 30 milligrams. The primary endpoint in this study was DAS-CRP remission or an ACR50. At 24 weeks, upadacitin of 15 and 30 milligrams was significantly better than methotrexate alone with an ACR50 of either 52 to 56% for the JAK inhibitor or 28%, more or less double the response for methotrexate. Similarly, the ACR20 responses were higher with UPA, 78 or 79% with UPA and 58% with methotrexate. So uh, no new safety signals in here. Again, JAK inhibitors have looked very good in head-to-head -head studies against methotrexate, and this is particularly in early RA. You may remember from uh, ULAR, we talked about this study, but a select uh, cut of this study looking at patients who were treated even earlier, and yes, their response rates were even higher. I think that's really somewhat uh, exciting. Lastly, there's a report from, uh, I think it was JAMA, uh, that looked at lupus anticoagulant activity in COVID. We've talked about that before. You know, COVID patients are at higher risk for thrombotic events and some bleeding events. Uh, it's been associated with high D-dimer levels and evidence of antiphospholipid antibodies and lupus anticoagulant uh, activity. The question is, is that related to inflammation or is that really part of the disease? Um, in this particular study of 187 COVID patients who underwent uh, uh, lupus anticoagulant testing, they showed when uh, the COVID patients were uh, lupus anticoagulant, let me see, negative, the, um, let's see, the rate of COVID was 22%. When they were lupus anticoagulant positive, the rate of COVID was 44%. More importantly, if you were uh, lupus anticoagulant positive and you had COVID, positivity and the disease, you had a 64% chance of documented thrombosis, either arterial or venous. Again, this suggests a, a, a more consistent role for the, this lupus anticoagulant and that it may significantly contribute to the thrombotic events that we're seeing in the coronavirus infections. Lastly, I want to uh, again remind you that our daily email and our website has a new feature on it that is going to be discussed here in the podcast, and it's called Backtalk. Backtalk is um, a place you can go to, a button you can click on either the email or on the daily website, and there you can record your question, your case, your thing that you want to discuss, something that you didn't like that I said in one of these podcasts, and we will discuss them, maybe yours, maybe someone else's, in future podcasts to come. Look for it. It's called Backtalk where backtalk is a good thing. That's it for this week on the podcast. Um, make sure you go to the website to check out these citations and more. Take care.